We can experience pleasant things, but without losing our balance about them. Clear so far as a framework? Here's a little graphic about it. You don't need to worry about the detail of this chart. The point of it is that it it supports the point I made previously, that Mother Nature's plan is for us to spend a lot of time with the basic experience of needs already met. All right? The green zone. Punctuated by very brief bursts of red zone reactive stress, which end quickly, one way or another, hopefully for the best. But modern life, unfortunately, reduces our recovery period. That's why, out of kindness to ourselves, and care for what Mary Oliver calls the soft animal of the body, it's important to help ourselves come out of the green zone, come out of the red zone quickly, and in particular, stay in the green zone as much as we can. A very powerful way to do that is to take in the good. If we're in the middle of a reactive, stressful burst, we're spiking in the red zone, when it's authentically possible, maybe when the first wave of overwhelming pain passes, or the shock at what those other people did to you, uh, or the event passes, and we can start helping ourselves come down, dial down the upset meter, you know, dial down the stressometer, the stressometer, which is, you know, the peg, the needle is banging on the peg there, to bring it back. At that point, the more we turn toward the positive, the more we can come out of the negative. That's the first thing. So Mother Nature has endowed us with these natural processes of physical pleasure or a sense of comfort and connection with others that tend to quickly pull us out of bursts of reactive stress. And then the other thing is that the more that we actually internalize green zone experiences of basic well-being, basic calm, basic ease, there's enough air to breathe. The more that we do that, you know, we build out the neural substrates, as I said previously, of a mind without craving. So I'm laying a foundation here, and then I'm going to go into practices with you about it. But before I do this, I want to talk about one last layer of this. If you think about it, animals back in the day, right, who were all Zen, They're just totally green, you know, like it's all good, safe, you know, it's like, got a lot, everybody loves me, it's all good. Shump! They got eaten, right? Because they weren't always a little nervous, always looking around, a little cranky, you know, they weren't always kind of hungry, looking for the next thing. And they were not always sort of edgy, checking out their relationships to make sure nobody's cheating on anybody else, whatever. You know, they, those people lost out. The ones that passed on their genes, you know, were the nervous, cranky, greedy, driven, uh, jealous ones. Where are their great-grandchildren, you know, armed with nuclear weapons. All right. So, right? That's us. So, it's very interesting. If you try to actually feel utterly safe without one molecule of anxiety whatsoever in your mind, particularly with with good self-awareness, it's very hard to try to have a a sense of any sense of kind of drivenness, like not enoughness, a little subtle sense of scarcity consciousness, to really have that not at all present in the mind whatsoever for more than a few seconds in a row, that's not so easy. 
also, we always are kind of a little tend toward watchfulness about how we're standing with other people. You know, it's like uh, you're only as good as your last movie, right? So you, you loved me yesterday. What about today? <laughs> right? Mother Nature wants us to be this way. In effect, Mother Nature is whispering a well-intended lie into our ears all day long. It's a kind of delusion. Think of the Buddha's three poisons, uh, greed, hatred, and delusion. It's a subtle kind of delusion. Mother Nature wants to tell us all day long, be afraid, be a little afraid, threat level yellow at least, you know? She wants us, like the guy in the, the most interesting man in the world in the Dos Equis commercials, you know? Like, stay thirsty, my friends. Well, isn't it interesting, in terms of the approaching reward system, that the hypothalamus produces thirst. You know, he wants us to stay thirsty. It's a major source of craving. If you're looking for ground zero of craving in the brain, it's the hypothalamus, which is really the source of a lot of the, the drive and craving states, hunger, thirst, uh, lust, and so forth. All right? And Mother Nature is always kind of whispering to us about other people. You know, do they really love you? Uh, could they love you more? More people? <laughs> You know, don't you think I'm really groovy? <laughs> so, I think in ordinary terms, you know, we feel like, okay, I have enough food, okay, nobody's jumping out of the walls to attack me, okay, I, I've got at least one friend, my dog loves me, you know. That's good. I think of that as the, like, light green in the green zone. But how do we get into deep green? Deep green, where there's a profound sense of no deficit at all. Utter safety, utter protection, no threat whatsoever, and no, in terms of safety, avoiding harms. A sense of complete fullness, complete f uh, fulfillment, right? And also a sense of being utterly loved enough. Be nice to be loved more, but I'm liked, I'm loved, I'm approved of, I'm included enough. That's the deep green. And to do that, we have to push into Mother Nature's well-intended lies that are woven into the fabric of our DNA and be strong on our own behalf and really attentive to notice. For example, and we'll do these as practices momentarily, that you're actually all right right now. You are radically and completely all right right now in terms of the safety needs. Something might attack you in the future. There might have been attacks in the past. In this moment, you're actually fundamentally all right right now. When you are, sometimes we're not. But when we are, we can radically notice and go into deep green in terms of the avoiding harm system that we are utterly all right right now. Or in terms of approaching rewards, our needs for the cheese, you know, the little mouse inside us all, that there's so much right now in the field of awareness. As well as, you know, I got some food at home. I'm not as rich as I'd like to be, but I'm kind of okay. I'm not basically desperate, you know, unfortunately some people are, but if it's true that there really is an enoughness in this moment, I can let any kind of drivenness or grasping come to an end because I'm fundamentally satisfied in this moment. Right? That's deep green. Also in terms of the social system attaching to others, we can help ourselves feel in this moment I'm connected enough. In some larger sense, I'm radically connected out into allness, certainly to other humans, nature, the universe altogether. Also, we can have a sense of being just kind of awash in love. 
love coming in, love flowing out, it's love either way. Uh, that's the deep green of the attaching system. So for me, it's a powerful practice to do little things or notice little things in the course of the day that help us feel basically safe, basically satisfied, and basically uh, loved. But it's even more powerful, thousands of times, 10 seconds at a time, to drill it into Mother Nature's lying nervous system that it's actually okay and there's no need for any sense of de deficit or disturbance. That's the deep green. You see what I'm talking about? The deep green? And it's, it's humbling to walk across a room and to play with, what if I had absolutely no anxiety whatsoever? There was no bracing, there was no guarding, there was no vigilance. I felt completely at peace, completely safe in my environment. Just walk across your living room like that. It's not so easy. Walk through a mall or down a city street or through your office building, you know, driving in traffic. It's not so easy. While talking with someone, keep regenerating the felt sense of I'm fundamentally safe, I'm fundamentally all right, I don't need to brace against an attack. It's not that easy because Mother Nature doesn't want us to see it this way. But paradoxically, just to wrap up, then I want to hear what you have to say, then let's do some practices. Um, the, the calmer we are over here, the more settled we are, or calm's not the word I want to use, the more balanced and present and equanimous we are over here, actually the more clearly we can see the real negatives in the world. Oftentimes if we're caught up in anxiety or irritation or feeling inadequate or frustration, it's harder to see the real threats. So paradoxically, feeling more that our own needs are met helps us see the unmet needs out there for ourselves and others. Okay. I really encourage you, help yourself, lots of little moments to go into deep green. The mind of no craving at all. Okay, any comments or questions so far? All the way in the back. Right. Yeah. So what about phobias? So the person might feel a global sense of peace, but there's just an automatic response to fill in the blank, the spider, the snake, the what have you, right? The closed space. Um, first, the container helps. So often people with a phobia also have generalized anxiety disorder wrapped around it, which becomes a vicious cycle in a sense. It helps to reduce, you know, the sort of the field in which the particular issue sits. It's a little bit like a mosaic, you know, with a hundred tiles. Maybe one of those tiles is the phobia or the trauma or the loss or the frustration. Well, if a lot of the other tiles around that particular tile are also problematic, that's different from having lots of other tiles around that tile that are doing really well. And oftentimes it's hard to change a phobia right off the top but we can work on the other tiles. That's part one. Then part two, yeah, there are a lot of methods that work with that phobia, and a lot of them boil down to linking. Because you're, uh, in a graduated way, exposing the person to the negative material while having a very strong sense of all the positives. I'm safe, I'm with my loved ones, they're holding my hands, uh, I'm generating a rational understanding, this is a, this is a snake that's across a room in a glass cage, 
you know, I'm, I'm building up the positive that's associated with the negative, and gradually the positive, when these methods work, you know, supplants the, the negative. Um, but I would just say that. Okay, great. And when these things happen, take in the good. Help yourself be a fast learner. We're always, the brain is continually learning, for better or worse. You know, are we learning for the better? And what's the slope of our learning curve? Is it shallow, based on the negativity bias? Or is it steep, because we're helping ourselves really register positive, useful states of mind? And we don't do this out of chasing after them, or some Pollyanna-ish, idealistic view of life. We actually do this out of this hard-headed clarity that life is often difficult, and we've got a Stone Age brain that's biased to the negative in terms of learning. Right. Um, well, I was joking with someone the other day that, you know, if they could give me the blue pill and I'd go into enlightenment, or I could sit on a cushion for 30 years, give me the blue pill. <laughs> but I think you learn something by being on a cushion for 30 years. You don't learn if you are given the blue pill. But wouldn't we love to be able to just flip a switch? And I think I'll try to generalize from your question a little bit. Um, and it's, of course, very real. You know, I've been doing practices. I started meditating in 74, right? I've been at it for a while. And things come up, you know, I get hooked in different ways. Uh, it happens, right? Um, what do we do about it? A key idea, and then let's go into it as a practice right here. A key idea is to ask your, is to go through this kind of four-step process, which I go through myself routinely or take people through as a therapist. Number one, what's the issue? That, that, that helps right there, just defining the problem. So that you're already there, okay? The second dart reaction occurs, all right? I get worried too much. My mood is blue. I'm vulnerable to feeling rejected. The fact of my life is I don't have a partner, and I wish I did. And that fact of my life doesn't seem to be changing quickly. What do I do about you know, the pain that's arising out of it. What do I do? So we, step one, what's the issue? Step two, the most important question, what would help? What if it were more present in my mind would make a good difference here? This is a hugely important question. Even if you don't know the answer to it, it's the question to ask. It's the question to answer. What would make a big difference? Right? And then, third question is, once I know what that is, once I know what that factor is or that experience might be, what body sensations would make a big difference, what emotions would make a big difference, what perspective thoughts could make a difference, what desires would make a difference, what inclinations could make a difference, what is it? What's my vitamin C? If I have scurvy, that's my issue, I need vitamin C. If 
have anemia, I need iron. Vitamin C is not going to help my anemia. Iron's not going to help my scurvy. What would help? What's the antidote? What's a key resource that would make a big difference? Right? And it's okay to not have a perfect answer. It's okay to have a few answers, but at least some answer. Otherwise, we're just swirling around with the issue. And then once you know what's that key experience for you, then you can look for ways, third, to have it, to activate it, to get it going. And then in the fourth step, install it inside your brain. In a sense, this business of cultivation is like lighting a fire. In the first step, we have to ignite it. You've got to get the song playing to record it. We've got to get the positive experience going, often just simply because we notice it's already there, right under our nose. In the second step of taking in the good, we add logs to the fire. We enrich the experience. Right? We heat it up, we help it last, and so forth. In step three of absorbing and taking in the good, we receive the warmth of the experience. We receive the warmth of the fire. Okay? So you see those four steps? What's the problem? What's the solution? What experience or, or factor inside me would make a good difference here? Third, how can I have that experience? How can I get it going? Fourth, how can I really take it in? So it makes a lasting difference, so I don't waste it on my brain. In a little bit, in a moment, using my model, which is like any model, a useful fiction at best, it's a raft to get us across to the other side, if you will. In my model of the three needs of safety, satisfaction, and connection, the three systems, avoiding harms, approaching rewards, attaching to others, I'm going to explore with you three fundamental experiences that are key resources for those three needs. They're targeted. For example, if late it, imagine a little story here that you're, you've got a teenage daughter, she's out with friends, very reliable kid, she's due home at 1 in the morning, and it's 2 a.m., and you don't know where she is. Okay? You can't find her. She doesn't answer her cell phone. This has never happened before. You call her friend's parents. Nobody knows where their kids are. Everybody's getting really scared. And then, go with me here. It's 2 in the morning. Your boss calls you. Make it up. And says, guess what? We had a great quarter. You get a bonus, $10,000. I just had to tell you. I know it's 2 in the morning. Now think about it. What would you actually experience? You're worried sick. Your avoiding harm system is really activated here. It's running. And you've got a reward coming at you. Right? You're afraid for a stick, and someone has offered you cheese. Well, thanks for the cheese, boss, but whatever. Where's my daughter? Right? And then the phone rings, she's fine, they had a car accident, they needed a tow, everybody's okay, they'll be home in an hour. Whoosh, now you feel okay. In other words, we need experiences that are often targeted at whatever our issue is. See how that works? Brief story about myself. So I grew up uh, middle, middle class, suburban environment, L.A., not a scary home environment, no terrible threats, no major disturbances, no major traumas. My avoiding harm system was basically okay. All right? Even though by temperament I'm mildly anxious, it was all okay there. Second, approaching rewards. Uh, I, could, I, I was the oldest of three kids. I learned how to get off my parents' radar by being superficially a nice boy. <laughs> Little did they know, you know, so I could go out in the hills, build my forts. I was, did well in school. I could accomplish things. I could get rewards. I was pretty okay in that regard. But, aha the attaching to other system. My parents, my father's still alive. Uh, he's gotten better with age. 
then my parents were loving, decent people who were really bad at empathy. That's an interesting kind of parent. I think a lot of parents are like that. My dad grew up in the Midwest, grew up on a ranch in North Dakota. My mom's different background, but for both of them, empathy was not their strong suit. While being well-intended, decent, honorable, loving people. So I experienced a lot of moments of not feeling seen at all as a kid. My normal needs for attunement and rapport uh, and empathy were not very well met. And then I have a very late birthday, October 21st, and I skipped a grade, so I was very young going through school. And I had a lot of experience of social exclusion, like I was looking at others through a wall of glass, feeling like, as my dad put it uh, from his ranch background, like the runt of the litter. Um, left out, dismissed, put down, you know, bleh. picked last for sports, whatever. Trivial stuff compared to what a lot of ex people have experienced. Kind of C minus emotionally, but we all have natural needs for these supplies, for attaching uh, supplies in terms of being included or valued or wanted. I didn't have very much of that. For me, it was a very thin soup. So I hit young adulthood when I finally went off to college uh, with a big hole in my heart. Now, what would fill that hole in my heart? What would be the antidote experiences for my particular second art issues? Feeling safe and strong? That's nice, but that wasn't my issue. That's in the avoiding harm system. Right? Feeling grateful or glad or accomplished, that too is good, but that's in the approaching reward system. Didn't scratch my itch. It wasn't the medicine my soul needed. But feeling included, having a bunch of guys in my dorm say, hey Hanson, you want to get some pizza? Having a girl smile at me. Having a guy in my intramural football uh, team once say to me, Henson, you're good, I'm going to throw to you more. Oh my God, it was like being visited by a god. Because of course he was a very studly stud, which made it have even more impact, you know? Huh! When I was having these kind of experiences, these are my vitamin C moments, right? I, I started helping myself. I noticed that these were good facts, and I tried not to waste them, as we often do. I tried to actually have a good, I tried to notice the good fact in the first place and then have a good experience from the good fact instead of just noticing it but not feeling anything, which is so common. And then third, once I got that good experience going, I started learning how to really help it sink in. Now, even though the hole in my heart initially felt, honestly, visually about as big as the construction site for a skyscraper, you know, with bulldozers going inside it and dump trucks coming out of it, a few times a day I'd throw a brick into that hole a brick into the pit, a little moment of feeling included or wanted or valued or liked, even loved. I would help myself register it, feel it, and throw that extra brick in the hole. And week after week, month after month, year after year, I've gradually filled that hole in my heart. One brick at a time. If you take care of the minutes, the years take care of themselves. So that's the basic idea. So for me, the takeaway point, and then we'll go into a practice about it, is to look for what's your vitamin C? Or what's the vitamin C, as it were, for someone you're working with or care about or in a relationship with? What's that experience that would make a lot of difference? Now, some questions that help answer this. One question is, um, what does my heart really, really long for? Another question is, thinking about childhood or maybe an adulthood situation, what, if it had been present, would have made all the difference in the world? And the key there is not so much the circumstance that would have been present or events or externals. They're important. 
But what would I have experienced as a result? That's the key question. What experience in me would have made all the difference in the world? That's another way to get at the answer to the question of what's my vitamin C. Also, um, on my website, and shameless plug, because uh, I'm writing about it, my next book, there's a little blue card about it, Hardwiring Happiness. Um, I have some tables uh, that are freely available in my slide sets, as also in other places, where I talk about what are matched experiences or resources for particular issues. Okay? Broadly, for issues around anxiety or anger or trauma, experiences of protection, relaxation, strength, and feeling all right right now are key resources. They're not the only ones, but they're high value. They have high impact. Right? Experiences of protection, experiences of strength, relaxing, and feeling all right right now. For the approaching reward system, if we feel frustrated or disappointed or there's been a loss, experiences of gratitude, and gladness, or as we'll see shortly, feeling the fullness of the moment, so full, who could want for anything more, and experiences of goal accomplishment, of success, those all are really good for the approaching reward system if it has issues. See how I'm matching them? See how I'm doing that? And then obviously in terms of attaching to others, uh, experiences like feeling included or understood or liked, or appreciated, respected, or even loved, or feeling loving ourselves, broadly defined, which includes compassion, kindness, altruism, generosity, and so forth, those are key experiences for the attaching rewards, for, for the attaching to other system. Last point, love is the universal medicine, because you might have realized this already, feeling loved and feeling loving the heart full of love coming in, flowing out, that certainly helps us in terms of our needs to attach to others. But also, if you think about it, love is very rewarding. Right? It really helps the approaching reward system. And love is very reassuring. Because as we evolved in hunter-gatherer bands, exile was a death sentence in the Serengeti. Feeling loved, feeling seen, feeling cared about is a very good way to feel less anxious. Okay? So that's a lot of verbiage, a lot of talk. You get the basic idea. Major takeaway, what experiences are high-value experiences for me these days? And then life becomes this fantastic opportunity for growth. What am I working on? What am I helping? What, what's a key flower or a key type of flower I'm trying to grow in the garden of my mind for something I'm dealing with these days? And then you can focus on that and build it up over time. Do you want to try a practice? Of course you do. Enough of Rick Blather. All right, so I'm going to record this wherever my recorder is. My helper. We're going to post this on Dharma Seed. My helper is going to record this. I have another helper. I have a new helper who's going to help record it. It's all good. It's all great. It's going to work just fine. So, so we're going to do this practice, and I'm going to do it on the three systems. Oh, I'm already rolling. There you go. So you have to find, you have to segment it somehow, but here we go. Actually, I think it's okay. We could, this is a coherent unit. Let's just keep it. Okay. All right. And you can hear this. You can get this free for yourselves on Dharma Seed. In a, probably a week it'll be posted. 
just search on my name on dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A seed.org. Search on my name, ba-boom, courtesy Sean and Spirit Rock. This, this material will get pulled up. Okay? So here we go, coming into a sense of presence. Just noticing what's already here. The heat in the room, maybe some restlessness, you know, realities, letting them be here. I'll go backwards to the four steps of taking in the good. Okay. So to begin with, in terms of the avoiding harm system, see if you can notice that you're actually all right right now. Most of the inputs coming into the brain originate inside the body. In other words, the brain is continually tracking how the body is doing. And if you think about it, most minutes of most days for most people, the body is telling the brain, you're basically okay. Notice that there's enough air to breathe. Notice that, hopefully this is true, there's no overwhelming pain. Even if there is pain or some kind of disturbance, there's a core of you or a space that's fundamentally all right, right now. So you're helping yourself register and register again and again because the sense often quickly crumbles because Mother Nature doesn't want you to think you're radically all right right now. So you have to kind of be strong for yourself to hold on to the truth, the experience of the truth, that you're actually all right, right now. It can help to let any unnecessary guarding or bracing soften in your body. And letting it sink in. What's it like to open to and receive and become increasingly at home with the felt sense of actually being fine right now? Something might happen in the future. Difficulties have happened in the past. But right now, ah, there's a basic all rightness, basic safety. 
so you can feel needless resisting falling away. Aversion is falling away. There's no basis for it. There's no basis for that kind of craving. You're all right, right now. opening to a fundamental sense of peacefulness on the basis of being all right, right now. Then letting the sense of being all right move to the background. Second, see if you can be aware of that in any moment there's an incredible amount of stimulation coming into your mind. In other words, in a way, there's so much. There's so many sounds, there's so many thoughts, there's so much pop, 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 popping of the effervescence of consciousness, the little bubbles of thought and feeling and sensation, that if you're just really receptive to the fullness of this moment, there's no need to wish for anything else. See if you can get a sense of grasping, falling away, opening into a kind of contentment, a basic well-being so filled by stimuli in the mind. Who could wish for anything more? If you like, you might also think of some things you're grateful for or glad about. So that you can sense 
drivenness, falling away, grasping, falling away, resting instead in a fundamental contentment with no sense of deficit or disturbance. And then last, moving on to the attaching system. See if you can help yourself find an important but sometimes challenging experience of feeling loved enough, liked enough. It would be nice to have more people like you, more people love you, but if you can locate this experience of an enoughness with love, that there's enough love flowing into you and there's plenty of love flowing out of you, feeling liked and loved enough such that clinging, a form of craving, can fall away. In other words, independent of whatever has happened outside of you in your life or in your life today, independent of that, can you find your way home to the experience inside your own mind of feeling loving and feeling loved enough? might experience a kind of relief or a kind of falling away of tension or imbalance as you rest in, to the extent you can in a growing sense of basic peace, basic contentment, and basic love. So that was an experiment and an ambitious one. I just went for it. Um, and I think you did too. 
what happened? What did you learn from it or questions you might have about it? Please, do you want to stand up? If you're willing, if you can. It was very difficult to stay awake with that kind of contentment. Ah, right. (laughs) Stay thirsty, my friends, right. Don't lose your edge. Yeah, no. Well, sometimes it does happen that we fall asleep or we get kind of sleepy. Very normal process. Um, But with practice, that kind of contentment can feel very delicious. It's interesting that two of the five factors that promote concentration in traditional Buddhist practice, two of the so-called five jhana factors, jhanas are these non-ordinary states of deep absorption that constitute the right concentration element of the Noble Eightfold Path, One factor of steadiness of mind is bliss, rapture in the body. And the other one is joy, uh, sukha, sweetness, you know, that has kind of a continuum from happiness to contentment to tranquility. So, you know, it's interesting to appreciate that positive emotion helps steady the mind. Happiness is skillful means, including more energizing forms of positive emotion if we are starting to get sleepy. All right, other people playing, and again, playing around with this basic idea. You kind of get what I'm getting at here? We have these needs. Uh, We tip into craving when we feel like our needs are not met. Mother Nature doesn't want us to experience that our needs are deeply met. How do we help that experience drill down into the motherboard of the brain again and again and again and again and again? Good. Yeah. So the first part, I was really surprised. My heart was racing. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. And then the next two were comforting. Yeah. Uh, the thing about, by the way, the fears, the threat system, for many people, it makes them anxious to not be afraid. <laughs> if you think about it, which makes sense, because it's when you're feeling confident and everything's groovy that you lower your guard, and then whamola, that's when they nail you, right? So sometimes it comes up for that. Uh, But I have found this practice, you know, for me there are a handful of practices that have really big impact. Feeling cared about, huge impact. Feeling all right right now, you know, again and again and again, like five seconds at a time, that's a powerful practice, very powerful. And again, we're, you know, fear, and another way of thinking about it, again, loosely, right, we have a primate, mammal, reptile, Right? attaching, approaching, and avoiding, neuroplasticity decreases as you go down in the brain and therefore back in time. In other words, the monkey is a fast learner. Cortex has a lot of neuroplasticity. The mouse is a slow learner because the subcortical regions, which include the amygdala, the hippocampus, basal ganglia, etc., they're slower to learn. The inner iguana, man... <laughs> It's a lot of repetition. And the inner iguana is focused on fear. That's why learning experiences that relate to avoiding harms most need lots and lots of repetition. And for me, this is a way of understanding ourselves a little bit and being kind to ourselves. Oh, okay, sweetie. You know, recognizing that you're loved, you get that pretty quickly. Recognizing deep down inside that the war is over, you need a lot of help to let that one land. But we're going to give you that help. It's a nice way to understand it. Okay, great. Where is this evolution of the brain going to take us? Oh my God. Where is the evolution of the brain going to take us? I, 
I don't know myself. Uh, brain evolution is pretty slow. It takes many, 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 many generations. I don't know. Um, it's a little outside my topic, but uh, no, I, I don't mean that at all disparagingly. I, I have a little concern about genetic manipulation. You know, if you, if you just think out a century or a ten centuries, a thousand years, I mean, there were people living here a thousand years ago, many thousands of years ago. I hope there will be people here a thousand years, many thousands of years in the future. Uh, you know, the technologies are progressing so quickly around genetic manipulation for good or ill, you know, I'm kind of wondering what will happen there. But in addition to whatever physical evolution might be able to create in the brain, I think the possibilities of mental, cultural evolution are even more extraordinary. Because that's really where there's a lot of possibility. Yeah. And I think part of uh, the story, honestly, of this, this century will be how the human species comes to term with the objective conditions being present for the very first time in our tenure on the planet to actually help every single human being stay out of the red zone. I mean, historically, we didn't have pain control. Many women died in the act of giving birth. You know, Hobbes was right. For many uh, hunter-gatherers, life was nasty, brutish, and short. All right, that's a positive thought for you. Um, you couldn't meet people's needs 100% reliably in their basic needs to keep them out of the red zone. But these days, we actually have the material resources on the planet. We have the know-how. We don't have the will yet, but we have the know-how. We have the objective conditions to fundamentally enable every human to be safe, fed, and reasonably fulfilled and accomplished, and you know, nurtured by us and protected from them. We could actually do that. And that's historically unprecedented as a physical, as a material objective possibility. And I think a lot of the story of the next hundred, if not thousand years, will be the human species coming to terms with this completely new reality and wrapping its mind around it. But that's a quick sidebar, you know. Meanwhile, let's take care of the minutes that are under our nose to take care of, right? We've got a lot of work to do here and now. I better move on to another person maybe. In the back, yeah? Right there, yeah. The approaching reward one? Yeah, Get the I'm cheese? Mm -hmm. I am so far um, disconnected from what that even means if that's indicative of something. <laughs> it's just, I'm yeah. so ensconced in feeling safe yeah. and feeling love. No. That's solid for you. Well, first of all, thank you for being candid. And then also thank you for, um, in a sense, to me, making a very important point, which is, Practices like these turn over rocks. And sometimes lovely butterflies, if, I don't know, crawl out, they don't crawl, they flutter. But other times, whoa, strange things come out. You know, we discover things. Like, oh, it's pretty easy to feel safe. Oh, it's pretty easy to feel loved. Hmm, feeling rewarded, you know, harder. What do I do about that? And it helps to know this is your issue area. You know, for me, I knew it was around feeling loved and prized. That's where my injuries were. So that's where I focused a lot of my own growth. Um, with regard to feeling rewarded, a wonderful way to feel rewarded 
is physical pleasure. Like I'm imagining that if you, whatever your favorite food is, it tastes good, right? If, yeah, there I saw that face. Right on, well there you go. Follow, follow your bliss, you know. Uh, that's a reward, experience, physical pleasure, having your back scratched if it itches, or taking a shower on a humid, muggy day, or what have you. Putting on a jacket if you feel chilled. Those are all very physical, primal pleasures. They work even if you're severely depressed. That's a very useful thing. Um, there are other forms of reward, like just noticing when you accomplish something, when you finish an email, pause for five seconds. Complete. You've, you wash a dish. Complete. You wash all the dishes, and the dishwasher is now going. Complete. You get the child in bed. Complete. Long day. Finally get to 9 o'clock, I'm clocking out. You know, I'm punching out in the factory. Huh. Accomplished. These are all opportunities for minor and sweet reward experiences, for example. And then if you do it again and again, you'll sensitize your brain to that particular kind of experience. Right? Because the brain is designed to learn from its experiences, and it's designed to become better and better at learning from whatever experiences it has repeatedly, for better or worse. If you have largely negative experiences, your brain will get better at learning from them and forming structure as a result. Same way with positive ones. So by repeatedly inclining the mind, as the Buddha taught, in a positive direction, that will become the habit of the mind, which means the habit of the brain. One more person. What, then I'll go on a little bit. Right there. I'll get to you in the back in a second. That's good. Oh, no worries. You're both in my line of sight. No worries. Purple first. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you're pointing out something that I've kind of left out, so I appreciate it, which is that the brain, of course, is just a big node, in effect, in a large net, a large nervous system, which moves through the whole body, right? Including in the heart, the gut, all the way down to the tips of our toes. You know, we have extensions of the nervous system. And this nervous system intertwines with the immune system, the hormonal system, and the cardiovascular system. Uh, so when I'm talking about the brain, for me that's a little bit shorthand for the nervous system altogether. And I recognize that the nervous system arises dependently upon all these other bodily systems and then out into culture, other people, nature, and all the rest of that. So the point is, from that, it's to appreciate that you know it's all connected. So for example, if we have an allergic reaction, our immune system activates for one reason, or we have an infection of some kind, our immune system activates, that produces chemical messengers called cytokines that go into the brain. And for certain people, uh, lock the hypothalamus on stress hormone alert, stress hormone alert, and lead to depression. There's this whole thing called the cytokine theory of depression. There's a linkage between immune system activations and a disturbance of mood in the nervous system, for example. And it's a two-way street. If we use mental practices to lower stress and feel happier, that'll help strengthen the immune system. So for me, it's really useful to appreciate the intertwining of all this and to realize there are lots of points of intervention. If you want to lift your mood, make sure you're not sick. You know, The number one uh, symptom of illness is depressed mood. It's the most common symptom. 
really watch out for needless inflammatory reactions. Don't eat foods you're allergic to, you know. Do what you can about pollen, whatever. I mean, practical things. Or the heart, like the work of HeartMath or other folks who work with heart rate variability that kind of get the heart into a good rhythm, a good zone. By getting the heart into a good zone, by doing practices like making sure that your inhalation and exhalation are equal duration, which tricks the heart into a very nice rhythm. Little practices like that get the heart in a good zone, which then reverberates throughout the whole body system, including up into the brain. It's nice. I think it all kind of works together. On the other hand, you know, I think there are about 40 million neurons uh, that are centered in the heart. That's a lot, 40 million. That's a lot. Well, 100 billion in the brain, you know. So I think sometimes people tend to idolize the heart, the physical heart, because it sounds warm and fuzzy, and the brain sounds kind of cold and Spock-like and gushy, you know. But the truth is, if you're, you know, like if you feel into your heart right now, be aware of your heart area right now, that experience is being constructed inside your head, you know. Feel your big toes, right? You feel your big toes, but that experience is constructed basically inside your head. So, um, yeah. Okay, good. One more person all the way in the back, and then I'll talk more about the primal emotion, fear. Yeah. Okay. It's not the only three, but for me, these are big ones. Actually, I think I had four. So the first one is feeling protected, right? Because if we're threatened, we want to be protected. A second one, incredibly important, is again and again and again, register strength. Especially forms of strength that don't get a lot of press, like endurance, surviving, just lasting. You know, if I can, I think for both men and women in different ways, uh, we disrespect ourselves needlessly often because we don't appreciate how much strength we really have to just last, to just hang in, you know, keep going. That's a form of strength that really matters. As well as, you know, more kind of palpable, intense forms of strength, like recalling a time when you really stood up for somebody or stood up for yourself, or a time you faced a physical challenge and dug deep and hung in there with it. Feeling strong, because often we feel afraid because we feel outgunned by the external threat of some kind. But if we feel stronger inside, we won't feel so threatened by it, because we have the resources inside to meet it. So strength is really important. A third one is to register that you're actually all right right now. You know, I might not be all right in the future, I wasn't all right in the past, but actually in this moment, no lions are jumping, I'm really okay. And letting that sink in again and again and again. Um, you know, I'm, I get this little uh, email that I recommend if you want, the words of the Buddha, the daily words, like the daily word, you know, uh, from Pariyati, P-A-R-I-Y-A-T-T-I, Pariyati. And I recently got um, one of these that just struck me. The Buddha was basically telling people, and these are the three words that popped out for me. He said basically, uh, you know, it's to be um, peaceable, friendly, and fearless. I just love that combination. You know, peaceable and friendly, that kind of sounds like Buddhism light, you know, be nice, relax, you know, peaceable, 
and friendly, but to be fearless, which means you're really addressing that deficit disturbance state that wants us to be afraid all day long. Wow, peaceable, friendly, and fearless. I like those words. You know, it takes a lot of courage to be fearless. I mean, we're seeing the real challenges, we're seeing the real threats, but we're not manipulated by them, you know, including by cultural forces that want us to think that it's always threat level orange, when it's really not. Or people we live with who want us to feel more threatened than we actually need to be or work with. Okay? We're very vulnerable to fear. And the flip of all that, actually, which is a decent segue, if you'll bear with me, to uh, this little bit I want to get into now, the avoiding system, it's not harming. Because to the extent that we are not a threat for others, we don't tend to trigger them into the red zone, and then they don't, they're less likely to act in threatening ways toward us. The Buddha said, give no person cause to fear you. I think there's a place for give for giving persons cause to expect no dessert if they don't eat their broccoli, you know, or to expect they won't have a job if they stop showing up uh, at work. Okay. Uh, but that's different from giving them cause to fear us. You know, I, a teacher of mine um, once said, you know, put no one out of your heart. You may need to put them out if you're Meditation gathering, because they're growing marijuana in the forest above the monastery in Thailand. It's kind of a no-no, right? Uh, You may need to put them out of your company. You may need to put them out of your bed. But we don't have to put others out of our heart. And if we, you know, harm others less, that's a very profound and powerful way to build up equanimity over here. So kind of going through it now, and we'll to a break momentarily, anything else that's specific to fear and anger? The avoiding harm system. Great. I have a question about fear. When we did our meditation, yeah. I was able to feel completely safe myself, but I have an 11-year-old Right. So, what if we feel our... Yeah, I'll repeat it. What if we feel ourselves unthreatened? Right? And someone we love, maybe a child, or let's go further out. Let's think about the world altogether. People are starving, hard things are happening, close at home, far away. Um, Larger causes like all the carbon that's being dumped into the atmosphere, you know species, extinctions, a lot of stuff, okay? How to be with all that, right? And I personally don't have, you know, the complete answer for sure about that, but I think about the Buddha's wisdom where we both allow ourselves to love fully and to be fully connected to others, full of loving kindness and compassion, Uh, and happiness at their good fortune for all beings. Omitting none is his phrase. Omitting none. The great and the small, the known and the unknown, omitting none. We do that while simultaneously recognizing that almost all and often all of the causes streaming through this moment to make their life or their experience 
are out of our hands. And we tend to the causes we can, but we recognize that there's so much that we just cannot control. Um, not to be morbid about it, but, well, I'll say it like this. I, I have friends who, you know how they're a couple, man and a woman. When they separate at the end of the morning, like they go off to work in different places, you know how people say, see ya, or bye, or, you know, kiss goodbye? They actually look at each other for a few seconds, and they know they may never see each other again. They're not morbid about it. They're not, it's not Hallmark Cardi. It's like being in reality. And it also, of course, totally opens the heart. What a profound practice to realize, don't know, you know, don't know. And to do that with what child, I have two kids, you know, it's super heavy, very heavy for fathers and mothers alike. And, um, and yet, that's the truth of things. You know, it's to have built up the strengths inside. And it takes strengths. You got to, you know, I have a friend who's pushing 80. He's got a t-shirt. Old age is not for sissies. Life is not for sissies, right? The noble truth is suffering. Things happen. And to be able to be fully open and yet also prepared for the worst at any moment um, really takes a lot inside. That's, again, for me, underscores the importance of pushing through the bottleneck of the brain to get good stuff inside us so we can do both of these things at once. Deeply loving, deeply receptive, and deeply centered and balanced. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we've completely handled fear. No more anger. As the Buddha says, getting angry with others is like throwing hot coals with bare hands. Both people get burned. It really helped me. I want to say a word about anger. Okay, anger is in the avoiding harm system in my simple system. Obviously, there's a blur and blends and stuff like that. It really made a big impact on me when I started reframing anger as an affliction on me. It's interesting. When we're scared, we tend to not like being scared. When we feel inadequate or ashamed, we tend to not want to feel that way. When we feel sad, we tend to not want to feel sad. But of the four major emotions, negative emotion bands, you know, fear, anger, shame, and sorrow, the big four, which are on a continuum of intensity, all right? Anger. We like being angry. I'm right. I should be angry. You are horrible. Right? We feel very justified, and especially when we're really fired up, especially in the beginning, you know? Um, and so it helps to appreciate that my anger at you hurts me so much more, usually, not always, but usually, so much more than it hurts you. There's a saying in AA, resentment is taking poison and waiting for others to die. <laughs> I think a lot of anger is like that. So reframing again, I think there's a place for you know, being activated and seeing injustice and revving up as soon as you can, try to find less costly ways of getting revved up and you know, seeing outrages and things that deserve attention and being fueled. As a therapist, I'd rather have an angry client than a depressed client because there's something you can work with there. Okay, but as soon as possible, find a way to be revved up with less negative emotion mixed into it, like anger. And one way into that is to be motivated, to realize anger's hurting me. Okay? Hmm. Anger. The Buddha has a line, he says, those who know they will die, settle their quarrels. 
On that note, let's have a break for 20 minutes. All right, see you at three. Home stretch, stick around. I'll end sharply at four.
sure, you sure. worry and Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.